0: Welcome to the Gasps from a Dying Art Form podcast, where I talk about the history and philosophy of tap dance, and things that are tap dance adjacent. If you like the show, please become a supporter on Patreon. Half of all profits go to the Mad Rhythms Tap Academy at the Harold Washington Cultural Center in the historic Bronzeville neighborhood of Chicago's South Side. Fill up, fill up, fill up your brain with facts. like a bank do it, do it, do it till your head is full. It's a five-alarm brain salt, can't you see? All this history is killing me. Whoa, 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 if you're locked in your station, here's the combination. It's a gas from a dying art form. Gas from a dying art form. Oh, yeah. Growing up, I hated school. I didn't care about any of that stuff that they were teaching. I was one of those what am I gonna need this crap, type of kids. It wasn't until I got serious about my tap dancing did learning about history become interesting. Once I had questions that the average person couldn't answer, the quest for knowledge became attractive, and information stuck in my brain better because I cared about what I was studying. I read Constance Vallis Hill's Tap Dancing America and thought it was great, It filled in a lot of the gaps in tap dance history that I was unaware of and put key figures and events into historical perspective. And I discovered that, since tap dance is one of the homegrown U.S. art forms, learning about tap history is to learn a basic timeline of United States history. And a whole lot of other stuff going on into, you know, philosophy, going back to the beginning. Now, all that stuff, they taught me in middle and high school, Seems interesting and relevant. It turns out that I had an interest in this crap after all. You see, I had a problem that the answers to such questions about tap dance were elusive. Questions like, where did it begin? Who were the people that started it? Why is there so much animosity between, uh, say, the Irish and African origins of tap? Why is Broadway tap different from contemporary tap? Although that is changing. How did tap reach its current form? What's a better, or at least different, way to teach tap dance? All these questions nobody who wasn't a scholar had firm answers to, only feelings about. It was this problem of wanting to find something even close to objective truth about tap and jazz dance, something I care about, that led me on a journey of discovery. There is a theory of education, a pedagogy, if you will, That resembles my own journey towards learning. When I read it, I was blown away by some of the similarities to my own educational journey. Brazilian philosopher and educator Paulo Freire, in his book with a heavy title called Pedagogy of the Oppressed, offers a method and practice of teaching called Problem-Posing Education which posits that it's easier to learn when what you are learning about is directly tied to what's going on in your life, an education that has psychological and tangible benefits. This got me thinking, how can we use this educational theory for the benefit of tap dance? I believe that we can utilize Frary's problem-posing method to become not only better tap dance teachers, but also run better dance companies and organizations and reach a level of understanding about the world that gets as close to objective truth as possible. The essay for this episode will look at how we use Freire's philosophy on the micro, macro, and super macro scale. But first, let me tell you about Freire himself. Paulo Freire was born in the town of Recife, Brazil, in 1921, and to understand how he came about his pedagogy of education, one must understand the environment that shaped him. Brazil was colonized by the Portuguese from the years 1500 to 1822. Over the years, a lot of the indigenous population died due to overwork, poor living conditions, and European diseases. So African slaves were imported to maintain the rate of production in the engenhos, the sugar mills, which resulted in people in Brazil having a high level of African ancestry genetically up to 30% in the northmost regions where Freire is from. These people were not viewed as, well, people, but as a means of cheap labor. The result was poor education for the indigenous, African, and mixed-race people of Brazil, who, by the 1940s, had an extremely high rate of illiteracy. As a child, Freire was part of the middle class, but his family was soon plunged into poverty by the worldwide economic bust of the 1930s, and by the death of his father. Now a member of the impoverished class, Frary was forced to steal food for his family and drop out of school. Eventually, Frary completed secondary school and went on to earn a law degree in 1947 and completed his doctoral dissertation at the University of Recife in 1959. It is his experience growing up in such conditions that caused him to devote his life to helping those of the underclass better their lives through education. In 1961, the mayor of Recife asked Frary to help educate the peasantry, the benefits of which, among other things, would allow them to vote, as there were literacy laws for voting in a country where the majority of the black and brown population could not read. Freire started a program where he taught 300 farm workers to read in just 45 days, and from there, the Brazilian government implemented his system throughout the country. Later, Freire would teach all over the world using his method of problem-posing education. In 1964, a right-wing military coup, aided by the CIA, you can look this up, overthrew the Labour Party-led government, saw what Freire was doing, labeled him a communist, sent into jail and eventually into exile in Bolivia, where he continued to educate the local peasantry, later returning to Brazil and gaining international acclaim and a position as supervisor for the government's adult literacy program. Freire died on May 2nd, 1997, in Sao Paulo. Many dance studios and whole countries, I mean, kind of everywhere, subscribe to mostly generalized and static Syllabus-Based Education, which Freire calls the banking concept of education. The banking concept of education, according to Freire, treats the student like a bank vault that the teacher merely fills with deposits of information. Freire writes that, quote, Narration, with the teacher as narrator, leads the students to memorize mechanically the narrated content. Worse yet, it turns them into containers, into receptacles, to be filled by the teacher. The more completely she fills the receptacles, the better a teacher she is. The more meekly the receptacles permit themselves to be filled, the better students they are. This is the banking concept of education, in which the scope of action allowed to the students extends only as far as receiving, filing, and storing the deposits." If you're just learning things for the sake of regurgitating them later, then why not have a computer do it? They do it better anyway. Bring on the tap-dancing robots! This method makes the teacher the capital S subject and the students mere objects. Quote, In the banking concept of education, writes Frary, knowledge is a gift bestowed by those who consider themselves knowledgeable upon those whom they consider to know nothing projecting an absolute ignorance onto others, negates education and knowledge as processes of inquiry. The teacher presents himself to his students as their necessary opposite. By considering their ignorance absolute, he justifies his own existence. End quote. Frary pinpoints the mistake that the teacher is making and gives us the key to achieving problem-posing education. The mistake is that the teachers do not realize that they also learn from the students. Instead of information being a one-way street, teachers and students should engage in a back-and-forth dialogue, what he calls a dialogical model. To look at something dialogically is just a fancy way of saying that there is a back-and-forth system of problem-solving, like having a dialogue with someone. Or as Ferreri writes, quote, "...through dialogue, the teacher of the students and the students of the teacher cease to exist." And a new term emerges, teacher-student with students-teachers. The teacher is no longer merely the one who teaches, but one who is himself taught in dialogue with the student, who in turn, while being taught, also teach. They become jointly responsible for a process in which all grow." End quote. That's the answer, that the students teach the teachers how to teach the students. Ask the students questions about themselves what they want to do why they are in tap class at all what are their goals how much time and space do they have to practice are they there to get a cardio workout or pretend to be shirley temple or a stair or glover you get the idea we can go even further what is their environment like what sorts of popular music and dance do the people in the community you wish to teach prefer what cultural elements are lacking What are the unique problems posed to the people living in this community, and how can a TAP class help to assuage these problems? It seems like a no-brainer that you might attract more students by teaching a regular occurring class differently in Chicago as you would in Memphis, or Los Angeles, or Berlin, or Tokyo, and different still depending on which communities in these cities you are teaching in. Gathering this information is a lot of legwork, but perhaps the results would compensate the extra time doing research with better attendance and better learning comprehension. Of course, we as teachers, we all have an idea of what we think the student should learn. But what if that is just ego and hubris? Maybe there are as many reasons and ways to teach TAP as there are reasons and ways to learn it. Quote, The problem-posing method does not dichotomize the activity of the teacher-student, writes Freire. She is not cognitive at one point and narrative at another. She is always cognitive, whether preparing a project or engaging in dialogue with the students. He does not regard cognizable objects as his private property, but as the object of reflection by himself and the students. In this way, the problem-posing educator constantly reforms his reflections in the reflection of the students. The students no longer docile listeners, are now critical co-investigators in dialogue with the teacher. The teacher presents the material to the students for their consideration and reconsiders her earlier considerations as the students express their own." Now I'm going to do some mind reading right now and assume that a good chunk, if not a majority, of listeners are saying to themselves, who are these kids that you can have a dialogue with about educational materials? Have you met most children? And, oh yes, I've met a lot of children. I was most children. <laughs> but the the people that Frary is talking about are adults, not children. And I could see the lack of attention span as an obstacle for problem-posing education among the early youth. Adult students deserve consideration too. And Frary's methods, I think, would work much better with adults based on my own a posteriori experience but i think that there is a lot of value in this when applied to children too i often ask during the last five or ten minutes of class if we get everything else done what they want to do usually it is you know across the floor or sometimes they ask me questions about stuff like why a step is named what it is or, wh- or why we do certain things in class like improvisation or why do we use a lot of jazz music Sometimes it's videos on YouTube or we play a game. The point is that they seem to apply themselves better when the education answers their questions or satisfies their needs. And in turn, I learn what those needs and questions are and can develop lessons around them and learn about what motivates them. So that's kind of like the micro level, like in class with the individual students. But this method could also be applied on the macro level like managing a dance company. Freire calls the problem that groups face limit situations, or obstacles that limit people from achieving their goals, which require limit acts to rectify. These limit acts work best when performed using praxis, which is a fancy philosophical term um, that everyone kind of puts their own spin on. But Freire describes it as, quote, "...reflection and action upon the world in order to transform it." Quote. Praxis, according to Freire, is what sets us apart from the animals, since animals can only act in the moment, whereas people can objectify the world in their imagination and their place within it, and make decisions based on past and perceived future experience. Freire calls recurring limit situations that affect large groups of people generative themes. Generative themes on a large scale can be something like how dancers don't make a lot of money despite their job requiring a high degree of skill, or the fact that dancers often don't receive health care with their employment, or are asked to work for free, and so on. When these concentric circles coalesce, Freire says that we can now realize what he calls their thematic universe. Freire writes that, quote, "...it is to the reality which mediates men." and to the perception of that reality held by educators and people, that we must go to find the program content of education. The investigation of what I have termed the people's thematic universe, the complex of their generative themes, inaugurates the dialogue of education as the practice of freedom." For a real-world example, let's look at my hometown of Chicago, where the theme of funding discrepancies for small arts organizations has been a problem affecting people along class and racial lines. A report titled Mapping the Dance Landscape in Chicagoland was published in June 2019, conducted by Grace Sato and Lawrence T. McGill from the research organization Candid, with input from organizations Fractured Atlas, Sustain Arts, and See Chicago Dance, and funded by the MacArthur Foundation and the Chicago Community Trust. The report which accumulated and organized data from a large number and variety of sources, both local and national, painted the most detailed picture yet of the who, what, and where regarding dance funding in Chicago. What was discovered is that dance is more present in Chicagoland than ever before, with a steady increase in philanthropic funding for dance organizations and an increase in dance makers and the number of dance studios and schools. However, for all this increase, it turns out that the top three recipients of support received a whopping 56% of the total funding. Only 9% of funding was directed towards communities of color. Given that people of color make up over half of Chicago's population, the inequity in these figures is stark and apparent. Other findings in the report found that the nonprofit dance sector in Chicago is mainly comprised of small organizations. More than half had annual budgets below $50,000. Nearly two-thirds had budgets below $100,000. These figures are disproportionately lower than that of the average budget for nonprofits nationwide. Essentially, half of the funding is going to three dance organizations, two of which reside and operate downtown or close to it, with the result going to the other 93%. In that 93%, Half of the artists and organizations eligible are already being funded below the national average and are unduly excluded from the majority of potential funding. In short, dancers and small dance companies, particularly dancers and companies run and staffed by people of color and run in neighborhoods that are predominantly non-white, faced unequal funding practices regarding type of dance company, type of dancer, and dancer company location, a thematic universe of generative themes that created one big problem. The response was that a cohort of black Chicago dance leaders engaged in praxis, that is, reflecting on this data and developing an active response, in large part based on this report. The result was the formation of the Chicago Black Dance Legacy Project, an organization whose goals are to facilitate cooperation between the historic black-run dance companies in Chicago. Essentially, the CBDLP has acted like the teacher-students, gathering data to see what overarching themes are in the community, in essence, allowing the companies they were seeking to help become students' teachers, who informed the CBDLP of what their needs are. The CBDLP assembled a cohort of dance companies and conducted a strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats analysis, or a SWOT analysis. To quote the CBDLP website, quote, After an initial needs assessment of the individual companies by the Community Programs Accelerator, a program of the University of Chicago's Office of Civic Engagement, the September 2019 convening focused on refining the goals of the initiative and identifying individual and collective areas of need by engaging the leadership of the dance companies in dialogue with each other. The resulting discussions and SWOT analysis revealed and confirmed the complex factors necessitating greater philanthropic investment in this critically underfunded sector of the arts. End quote. The investigation found several limit situations, that dancers were working for dance companies either for little money or free, that organizations had a lack of administrative help, and that it was usually being done by the dancers themselves that there was a lack of access to affordable venues, and that there was little cross-pollination of audience support for dancers and dance companies. The solutions that the CBDLP came up with was education and aid regarding complex administrative duties, stipends for the companies so that dancers make some money for their travel and their time, a collaboration with the beautiful Riva and David Logan Center venue, where companies are allowed to share the venue, cutting costs in half, while doubling the audience and exposing them to an adjacent dance company that they may not have been aware of otherwise. All of this proved so successful that the Chicago Black Dance Legacy Project, as recently as March of 2023, opened the cohort to accept new members, expanding the roster of companies, which now includes the tap dance company, Mad Rhythms. So there you go. The data was compiled, a teacher-student organization was formed, Companies as students' teachers were asked to join, and through dialogical conversations, themes and limit situations were discovered. And together, they all come up with creative solutions through action based on reflection and analysis, i.e., praxis, to combat the negative generative themes that had been afflicting the thematic universe of underserved dancers. It's only been four years since its conception, but the forward momentum of the CBDLP is promising and, I think, a clear example of how Frary's methods can be implemented on the macro scale. As these companies collectively grow and become large companies that receive a larger degree of funding, the same generative themes will present themselves again for other small companies and dancers of different backgrounds and will need to be overcome again through dialogical discourse. It's this constant analysis and modification of the system that allows growth to occur. If this approach to problem-posing education is so potent and positive, why don't we hear about more people trying it? The answer is a plague of ignorance and avarice conducted by people ranging from YouTube weirdos to a president of the United States. (laughs) I remind you that the name of Frary's book is Pedagogy of the Oppressed, and Frary wasn't writing about tap dancers, obviously, but Brazilian people of color who lived in extreme poverty, first dominated by European supremacy and later right-wing despotism. And Freire's writing reflects when and where he was living. So what is so terrible about Freire that people would want to dissuade you from reading his work? Well, Freire was an avowed Marxist, as are a lot of people after they experience impoverishment and authoritarian rule. When someone calls themselves a Marxist, they are essentially meaning that they view history and solutions to problems from the bottom up, focusing on working-class problems like like why is there uh, such a huge economic gap between rich and poor, how working 40 to 60 hours per week alienates people from their friends, family, and nature, or why uh, the Brazilian government didn't want to teach their slaves and workers how to read. Ditto for the U.S. slave owners, <laughs> by the way. Or how when advances in technology make manufacturing cheaper, the cost of goods either remains the same or go up while corporate profits continue to break new records. There's plenty to criticize about Marx's writings, too, like how he gave a great examination of the economic problems caused by capitalism, but very little solutions, which lead to all sorts of nutballs making a mess of his philosophy. You could also criticize his stance on absolute materialism, that trade and economics is the be-all and end-all of societal influence, which I do not think is true, myself being an artist who believes that art and the emotions it inspires is no slouch in the influencing society department. Also, his philosophy depends on people being decent and caring towards each other, which sounds good on paper, but has not played out that way historically, with whole governments like, you know, the Soviet Union, a communist country on paper, being corrupted by a rapacious oligarchy. But that's not what you usually hear. Instead, people use Marx's name as a catch-all to mean, well, whatever thing it is that they don't like, or they just say his name to get people riled up. Here is an example from a popular politician who shall remain nameless.
1: Uh, most important battle in our lives is taking place right now as we speak. For seven years, you and I have been engaged in an epic struggle to rescue our country from the people who hate it and want to absolutely destroy it. The sinister forces trying to kill America have done everything they can to stop me, to silence you, and to turn this nation into a socialist dumping ground for criminals, junkies, Marxists, thugs, radicals, and dangerous refugees that no other country wants no other country wants them if those opposing us succeed our once beautiful USA will be a failed country that no one will even recognize a lawless open borders crime-ridden filthy communist nightmare that's what it's going and that's where it's going I used to say that we will never be a socialist country I said it oftentimes I said it once at the State of the Union address, and people didn't understand what I was saying. But I'd shouted out loud, and I was right, because that train has passed the station long ago of socialism. It never even came close to stopping, frankly. We're now in a Marxism state of mind, a communism state of mind, which is far worse
0: geez louise that sounds scary right (laughs) junkies and marxists oh my marxism socialism communism whenever you hear these words used by someone seeking a position of authority they're just using these words as a boogeyman tactic using them as arbitrary and scary sounding words while never telling you why they are bad i gave a few critiques a second ago but when have you ever heard any talking heads on major news outlets mention them This same type of, no, you're really the bad guy, happens in tap dance with our history books. Respected tap dancer and writer, Margaret Morrison, panned Brian Siebert's What the Eye Hears as white supremacist garbage. That, since he uses quotes and language from antebellum and Jim Crow eras, that makes him as racist as the people who he's quoting. This is a little ridiculous, because how do you write a history book about people and not report on what the people said? obviously that's a fallacious argument but that didn't stop most of the tap dancers i know from refusing to read the book based on morrison's article even worse a lot of people didn't read siebert's book based not on her article but on the word of someone who read the article and not the book itself now a lot of people won't read it despite having it on their shelves for the reason of it's a racist book despite having no evidence other than a second-hand recap of a self-contradicting article that they never read. I go into more detail about this in GASPS, episode 4, titled Books from a Dying Art Form, What the Eye Hears by Brian Siebert. If the books in question are inherently bad, that makes you not want to read them. And instead of people reading and considering the material for themselves, they take the word of another and then propagate said faulty critique. I'm telling you, don't listen to other people. Don't take everything I say at face value. But instead, you got to read the books for yourself. In Pedagogy of the Oppressed, Freire goes on and on about liberating oppressed people via the means of education. And he can get a little spicy. For example, quote, Dehumanization, which marks not only those whose humanity has been stolen, but also, though in a different way, those who have stolen it is a distortion of the vocation of becoming more fully human. This distortion occurs within history, but it is not an historical vocation. Instead, to admit of dehumanization as an historical vocation would lead either to cynicism or total despair. The struggle for humanization, for the emancipation of labor, for the overcoming of alienation, for the affirmation of men and women as persons would be meaningless. This struggle is possible only because dehumanization, although a concrete historical fact, is not a given destiny but the result of an unjust order that engenders violence in the oppressors, which in turn dehumanizes the oppressed. Now that's peak Marxist writing right there. But Freire, like many post-Marxists and or socialists, people like Dr. Martin Luther King and Dr. Cornell West, offer solutions which often contain one essential element. Love. Freire writes that, quote, Dialogue cannot exist, however, in the absence of a profound love for the world and for people. The naming of the world, which is an act of creation and recreation, is not possible if it is not infused with love. Love is at the same time the foundation of dialogue and dialogue itself. It is thus necessarily the task of responsible subjects and cannot exist in a relation of domination. Domination reveals the pathology of love, sadism in the dominator and masochism in the dominated. Because love is an act of courage, not of fear, love is commitment to others." Ooh, scary! A lot of post-Marxist writing sounds like that, but you would never know that, because you have famous people on television and internet radio equating Marxism with heroin junkies. It's not all good, the Marxism, but it's not all bad. And it doesn't make you do smack. Here's where this ties into studying about tap dance. I present to you some logic that I think we can all agree on. You can't study the history of oppressed people without encountering Marx. Also, the origins of tap dance come from oppressed people. Is it possible to study the histories of oppressed people without encountering Marx? I say... No. Whether you are for or against his ideas, they have helped shape the world in major ways, and to avoid this train of philosophy is to miss the bigger picture. If that premise is true, that Marx is unavoidable in the study of oppressed people, then my second premise, that tap dance comes from oppressed people, means that to conduct a well-rounded study of tap dance history, philosophy, and psychology is to encounter and deal with the theories of Karl Marx. If you want to learn about the financial, racial, and political origins of minstrelsy, where much of modern tap dance was developed, you will no doubt encounter the work of David Roediger. If you are curious as to the psychological implications of how some white people love black art and culture, but hate black people, an odd dichotomy, you'll no doubt come across author Eric Lott. If you want to learn about how the Irish integrated with black people and other white people, you'll certainly come across author Noel Ignatieff. If you are interested in the narrative behind the Gregory Hines-led production of Jelly's Last Jam, you might want to check out the work of C.L.R. James. All of these authors are considered to write in a post-Marxist lens, i.e. looking at history from that of the lowest and oppressed groups and individuals. To ignore these authors is to miss a well-rounded and contemporary study of the origins of tap dance. Here is where we get Wittgensteinian for a second. I hear a lot that the best way to combat unreasonable hate is to have a conversation. I searched how to fight racism into Google, and the first thing that comes up is an interview with an author and Harvard Kennedy School lecturer on public policy, Robert Livingston, and his book, The Conversation, How Seeking and Speaking the Truth About Racism Can Radically Transform Individuals and Organizations. But how do you have an in-depth, good-faith, and truly productive conversation if you don't trust the other person? Literally using the same words to mean different things, like speaking two different languages. We're playing language games where nobody took the time to iron out the rules. Someone who studies the civil rights era can't help but come across stuff like socialism. On the other side... A person has been taught that anyone who brings up socialism is a liar and evil. The former has no choice but to learn about a particular thing, and, once they do, the latter considers them invalid. (laughs) What else would you call this but a form of oppression, being tricked to not only disagree with complex ideas, but to not understand them at all? If these ideas are so dangerous... Why don't they teach it to us early so that we can identify it later when we have actual voting power? Forgive this generalization, but why have you, dear listener, heard about the complaints against these radical ideas yet cannot yourself define them? Those listeners who can define the tenets of Marxism, how frustrating is it to hear people misrepresent 150 plus years of scholarship on a national stage to millions of people? Doesn't it drive you bonkers? This is why Paulo Freire's work is important because it can be used in a micro, macro, and super macro way. In a small yet not small way, Freire's ideas can be used for teaching, focusing on individual communities to better put together a curriculum where not only the students learn more about tap dance, but the teacher learns more about the students and how best to teach them. In a macro way, Large organizations, nonprofits, and small companies can benefit from gathering information on the needs of the community and to help other organizations discover what is limiting their development and implement programs to uplift large groups of dancers en masse, like the CBDLP did. In a super macro way, Freire's discourse on oppression can help you realize what in society is limiting you from achieving anything close to objective knowledge about something. In this case, The History of Tap Dance, because if you are too scared to read certain books, you'll never get the whole picture. This has been my personal experience. I had a problem that no one had the answers to, namely, tap dance. Why? If you talk to anyone about the animosity between Irish and black tap dancers from antebellum times to modern day, you'll hear all sorts of misinformation and speculation coming from both sides of the argument. And it's clear that some of our leading authorities on the subject haven't read the history. We can be better than that. From Master Juba to Bojangles to Arthur Duncan to Savion Glover, tap dancers have been a monumental force in social change. And perhaps we can be again. And again. And again. But to do so, we got to know what we're talking about. And that means not being afraid to read the hard stuff and to not be afraid of change in our art form and in ourselves. Reflect on your life to discover you or your group's limit situations. Then, through praxis, act based on that reflection. In true dialogical fashion, we can begin to chip away at the generative themes in our thematic universes and achieve something resembling actual solutions, not to mention better tap dancers. But that's just a gasp from a dying art form. Sorry to get all Marxian on you at the end, but I just can't stand liars, whether it's about tap dance or class consciousness. Thank you to our patrons, Junior Lanian and Lori Williams. Sorry I haven't got an episode out in a while, but I will be sure to make up for lost time, and I have uh, some doozies and special projects in the works. But I've never forgotten about you, my loyal subscribers. Love you guys, and thanks for hanging in there. And now it's time... For the Tap Dance Podcast Roundup! yee Whoa there, Nelly! My horse, Nelly. episode number 118 of the tap love tour podcast host and tap dance podfather travis N- wait a minute this episode features guest host and well-known tap dancer Josette wiggins and she does a decent job of interviewing renowned tap dancer jason rogers I, to be honest i thought it said aaron rogers the football player at first and i was ready to hear some trippy ayahuasca stories but but this is good too i'm kidding it's better Rogers relates his tap dance origin, a familiar tale, if you follow the who's who of tap dancers today. I mean, seriously, can someone send me a scoop of the water they served at the Universal Design Dance Studio run by Paul and Arlene Kennedy? Maybe that's the secret. Rogers talks about his time at Funk You and subsequent time on the road as part of the touring company of Bring in the Noise, Bring in the Funk and catches us up all the way to present day, talking about his position as faculty at the University of California's Gloria Kaufman School of Dance. It's a fun episode, a little bit different than the usual, uh, but check it out. On episode 18 of the Have Tap Shoes Will Travel podcast, titled Magic and Showmanship, host Rick Osland talks about a good book he had read, titled Magic and Showmanship, Naturally by Henning Nomes and the idea of no wasted movement. Great for magicians and actors, so why not tap dancers? Also in this episode, we get a peek into what's going on in Auslan's life, working as stage manager and sound technician for a local theater. And he also drops his tried and true method for cooking a hamburger. Auslan mentions that he was a vegan for nearly a decade, but upon encountering a really good deal on ground beef, out the window <laughs> or something like that get your juices flowing and your buns toasted by checking out this episode of the Have Tap Shoes Will Travel podcast continuing with an emphasis on food on episode 19 of the Real Talk Tap Talks vlog cast on YouTube host Nico Rubio interviews tap dancer restaurateur and entrepreneur Latrell Garnett episode opens with Garnett shedding on a stage built in the corner of his restaurant, Conscious Plates on the South Side of Chicago, before the two sit down at a table and talk about their long history together. The two street-performing veterans talk about their time dancing at the summertime event, Taste of Chicago, and about Garnett's time in the Mad Rhythms, Tap Dance Company, which he joined shortly after Rubio left. Littered throughout the interview are many anecdotes from the two friends' experiences together, and it makes for a heartwarming conversation. Garnett is no slouch when it comes to the hustle, starting at a young age selling essential oils, stained glass, and temporary tattoos, to building a livable bus house, to his current small business, Conscious Plates. Although Garnett has worn many hats never changed out of his tap shoes, so get to know Latrell Garnett, a tap dancer who you may not have heard of, but probably should, by checking out this episode of the TR Triple T podcast. On episode 62 of the Lost in the Shuffle podcast, host Hilary Marie asks the question, should you teach for free? Well, actually, other people asked her that question, particularly in one of the live chats hosted by her website, iTap Online. Well, that sounds pretty cool. What a service. Dancers were asking Hillary if they should teach for free, and she has nuanced answers and goes into the psychology behind teaching pro bono. What does that say about your value as a teacher and dancer? Should you feel bad about it? Should you feel good about it? What about from the studio's perspective? FYI, this is a during COVID episode when studios were facing a negative hit and inevitably losing students and money. It's a tough question that Hillary navigates thoughtfully and empathetically. So check it out and pay iTap Online a visit. And while you're there, uh, check out one of their hundreds of tutorial tap dance videos and do cool stuff like group chats. On the October 24th, 2020 episode of the Stop Time podcast, host Lisa Hopkins interviews, who is perhaps one of the best-known tap dancers in the world today, Ayadeli Cassell, in an episode that is just about 100% tap dance philosophy. Cassell talks about her personal philosophy of radical optimism, which allows her to get from day to day in an amicable way. From meditation, to chanting, to being a morning person... Cassell fills us in on how she maintains an optimistic worldview in spite of her hectic schedule and the social injustices reported on daily in our news. I mean, her name means joy in the West African Yoruba dialect, so she kind of has to find a way to be happy. Check out this episode of the Stop Time Podcast and maybe learn some ways to improve your day to day outlook. All right, that, that's everything. There's uh, nothing else, no need to wait around. I will see you later. Bye-bye. This is me leaving. I'm leaving right now. See, I'm getting the chair and I'm walking away. I'm walking away from you. I don't know where I'm walking. That's kind of the sad part, but I'm walking. I'm taking off my headphones. I'm walking away. You can hear me walk away. Okay, I think I think I think they're gone. I think we lost, you know, what do we call them? Well, uh well some some people call them squares. Not me. Uh but some people call them and and they lost them. So everyone here, uh, nice and round. Well, anyway, well welcome to the bonus section made for those who grew up with cassette tapes and some CDs with hidden tracks that you can only find if you know better or forget to turn the album off after the last song. I make Freire sound pretty good in this episode, but there is stuff that we can critique about him, too. In particular, the misogynistic way that he wrote throughout his career, and did what pretty much every male writer throughout history has done, which is to make the subjects of his philosophy strictly male. Even Dr. Martin Luther King mentions the manliness of the civil rights movement. No one was more incensed at the lack of consideration in Freire's work than notable scholar and feminist, Belle Hooks, who spoke about this very thing in a faux interview with herself, a.k.a. Gloria Watkins, in the book published in 1954 titled Teaching to Transgress, Education as the Practice of Freedom. When confronted with the contradiction between Freire's sexism and Hooks's uh, many citations towards him in her early work, Hooks had to say, that, quote, there has never been a moment when reading Freire that I have not remained aware of not only the sexism of the language, but the way he constructs a phallocentric paradigm of liberation, wherein freedom and the experience of patriarchal manhood are always linked as though they are one and the same, end quote. Hooks, in a display of wisdom, instructs people to not look past Frere's sexism but to transform his philosophy by incorporating feminism into it, saying that, quote, "...there is no need to apologize for the sexism. Frary's own model of critical pedagogy invites a critical interrogation of this flaw in the work. But critical interrogation is not the same as dismissal." End quote. Hooks then tells a story of the time she met Frary while studying and teaching at the University of Santa Cruz. He was an invited guest, and Hooks managed to secure a place in the crowd. When it came time to ask questions, Hooks confronted Freire and was subsequently accosted by other members of the audience for her feminist critique of his work. But it was Freire himself who calmed the crowd, telling them that he not only wanted to hear what Hooks had to say, but that her questions were crucial and continued to address them. I was confused when I read Pedagogy of the Oppressed because the accusation of zero references to woman in the copy I had was not true. And there were many. It turns out that Freire in the 1995 reprinting edited his work to be more inclusive, a sign that he had changed his worldview in response to the critiques. But when you listen to internet weirdos, you don't hear any of that. Now I know the topic of Marx is a touchy one for many people, but it is also absurd that it should be. Like I said before, you don't have to agree with anything that he writes or with the findings of those who write after him. However, the idea that there is a Marxist plot to overthrow humanity is ridiculous. Seriously, the next time someone uses 19th century philosophy in their argument about children's books, you know they're talking on some BS chorus. It's easy to say, go read for yourself, but the work is very difficult. I'll I'll grant it that. But that shouldn't stop you from doing your due diligence and at least trying to comprehend this material. Especially when people running for positions of authority at every level in the U.S. and abroad are telling you that it's evil and going to end the world. Sounds like you should kind of know about it, right? In the modern age, you can read books about the books, watch lectures from professors from Harvard and Yale for free, online, listen to audiobooks in the car. There are so many ways to digest this material that it's ludicrous that we have large groups of people spouting talking points that they themselves don't comprehend, and haven't at least taken the time to watch a 40 minute lecture by a world-class scholar in a prestigious university for free, seeing as they have been led to believe that it is the greatest danger to civilization. I'm also concerned about this anti-education movement going on in the United States in this year, 2023. It's funny, because most of the people telling you about how colleges and universities make you stupider all went to these same colleges and universities themselves. Now that sounds like the height of stupidity to me. If these institutions are subconsciously brainwashing people, then why are they themselves not brainwashed? Or maybe the brainwashing is the stuff that they are saying, which would mean the opposite, so I guess universities are good? Again, utter ridiculousness. Imagine a world where all the tap dancers read all the books and create art for public consumption that accurately conveys these difficult concepts in a way that is digestible for the masses. Thanks to us, no one in authority could pervert these ideas towards nefarious ends, seeing as the public now has a built in BSO meter thanks to tap dance. Now leaders will have to run on campaigns of people over profit, of love over fear, of truth over whatever it is that, Passes for truth nowadays. Look at the uproar caused by Savion Glover's and George C. Wolfe's Bring in the Noise, Bring in the Funk. It caused radical change in the individual tap dancers, on the institution of Broadway, and in the consciousness of the people who saw it. That was nearly 30 years ago. I say it's time for another tap dance revolution, and I believe this will only be accomplished by strengthening both our feet and our brains. Now go read the books. Catman, out.